In this episode, Andrew and I are talking with Clint Haycock from the Mindshift podcast. We're talking about leaving faith, why people like us do leave Christianity, what would bring us back into Christianity, and what some of the responses are to Christians on us leaving Christianity. I think this is a very important conversation to be had because my experience lately of engaging with Christians on the subject is there are a large number of Christians who simply don't get it, don't understand our reasons, they don't agree with our reasons, they don't even believe the reasons that we give for leaving, not to mention some of the just I don't know how to phrase it without sounding unpleasant but some of the nasty things that are just simply said about people who leave Christianity. So this is an extremely important conversation to be had. Not only are we doing this podcast episode but I featured this week on the Skeptics and Seekers podcast where we did two episodes of that with David from Skeptics and Seekers. Sarah joined us and there's also Dave the Graceful Atheist who I hope most of you will be familiar with. So go over to the Skeptics and Seekers podcast and hear a very similar episode over there with a different panel talking about much the same subject. I also recommend that you go and listen to the Graceful Atheist podcast where Dave does talk to many people who have left the faith and you'll be able to get a picture of some of the many reasons why people leave Christianity. I also want to recommend the Everyone's Autonomous podcast which does a very similar thing but does but there's a stronger focus on on the trauma that's involved with, with people uh, from that. If you are a Christian and you want to p- take part in this conversation and you feel that you can uh, do it in a in a respectful manner, then by all means, come along. Let's have uh, that conversation. I don't mind you disagreeing with us. What I do mind is you not listening to us. So please come along. This is an invitation to, to any and all. Let's have that conversation. Let's increase the understanding of everybody on why people leave and why they won't go back. We're talking today about people leaving Christianity, why they leave, could they go back, will they go back, why won't they go back. Our guest today is Dr. Clint Haycock. Clint, well, I contacted Clint because... Well, partly because he uh, is host of the uh, the Mindshift podcast, but also because he wrote a rather interesting uh, list of multiple reasons why people leave the faith. So welcome, Clint. Welcome to our podcast and tell us about yourself. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I'm glad to have you know met up with you guys. Obviously, talking before we hit record, we've got a lot in common, haven't we? So yeah, I'm really glad right. to be on your show. Yeah, well, it's so- good to have you. Yeah, it's the, I'll give you the short 30-second version. I was a pastor uh, while I was going to Bible college and seminary in the Portland, Oregon area. And then I ended up, we closed that church down, which is a long story for a lot of reasons. But I got really burned out in ministry. And as I was coming off the back of that experience, I came over here to the UK to do a PhD because I was going to get into academics, getting back into teaching which I then did for about another seven or eight years after I finished my doctorate. Uh, But I was deconstructing at the time, so I was increasingly having problems. And, of course, coming off the back of that really rough church experience, that led me into progressive Christianity, guys like Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, 
Donald Miller. So I was already questioning a lot of things. So it's been a long journey of really walking away from it. And I guess disentangling, that would be the word. It's There's a lot of entanglements, isn't there, emotionally and psychologically and, and on and on. Mm-hmm. Okay, when thank you for that. How long ago did you arrive in the UK then? That must have been almost 10 years ago now. More than that, yeah. It was in 2016. Yeah, no, I, no. I lose so track. I of, <laughs> there's a wrong digit in there somewhere. Wrong digit, yeah. 2006, I can't remember. <laughs> We've been here 14 years, so however many years that is. We need uh, to do something about your accent then. You need it, to do it's, the math, yeah. Yeah, it's like you're converting from uh, Apple to Android, but you haven't really given it up yet. It's true. It's funny because my youngest daughter, she lives in, well, she lived in Sheffield for a long time. So she picked right. up a lot of bizarre accents, but she also had a roommate that was from Cornwall. So she's oh, yeah. got Yorkshire, she's got Cornish, she's got a Chester. <laughs> so yeah, but most of us still retain our American accents, even though we've been here 14 years. Yes, I, so. moved, I moved uh, from uh, uh, Hampshire, which is uh, North Hampshire, which is a relatively posh area of the southern UK, close to London, into Somerset, right down on the on the in the west. Mm-hmm. And um, the the accent changes uh, a lot. You know, all the clipped Queen's English is completely out the window, and there's some mm-hmm. very odd phrases that happen. I've been down here about eight years now, and I'm I just can't get used to it. You can't get used to. It. I think what I've what I've learned being here that long is not so much the accents, but the British sort of slang. That that's yeah. the, the things that you the typical things that you use. Or because I teach construction now, I teach carpentry and joinery and multi skills at a college here in in Northwest England, and so I I have to obviously I have to use the terms and phrases that the learners would understand. I have to measure in meters and millimeters, and you know everything's metric, isn't it? Mm-hmm. As opposed to feet and inch, you know so. Uh, you have to make those those changes as you as you have to. Oh, getting those measurements wrong in the construction industry re- comes up with interesting yeah, results. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't want to make you know, a mistake. The, yeah, my my employer the, uh, my employer oh, provides products to the construction industry, mm. so uh, there, there may be some things that we're familiar with on that one. I'm sure there will be. Um, anyway, sorry, Andrew, you're going to say something interesting on subject, uh, weren't you? Uh, oh, uh, almost certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> either interesting or on subject. Uh, you mentioned in the run-up to the show, I, I realized just how much um, North Wales had influenced you uh, from a sort of colloquial standpoint in the, in mm-hmm. the run-up to the show. You mentioned um, something starting uh, tomorrow at half five. And when you said half five, the first thing I thought in my head was, well, that's two and a half. <laughs> it's not 5.30, right? That's exactly the point. We've just picked up those British phrases and and you understand yeah. exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's yeah. instead of saying 5.30, we'd say half five. Yeah, and everyone yeah, just knows what you're right. talking it's, about. Well, it's the right way to say it. It's half past <laughs> it's five, right. you know, so drop okay. the past. It's half yeah. five. Okay. And I have His to write, accent... write my dates and everything. Differently. Right. Properly. Oh, right. Properly. Yeah. Not differently. Right. Properly. Year, months, and, you know, all that. Instead of the American way of months, and I don't even know anymore. I'm so confused. I have to write so many dates in the workbooks for the students. Okay. So do well, you spell color properly? Well, I have to. I have to. Do, you know, I, in my PhD, I had to go with the, the UK spelling. Otherwise, it wasn't going to pass. So I just yeah, switched my word processor to UK English. And so it, it, every time I helps. didn't... I didn't use an S or a U or something like that, then it would flag it up. And does it hurt not using the Z key so much? Well, it's funny because they said, actually, you can get away with it in academics over here in the UK, but 
Yeah, I've just learned. I've just given that up. I've, that's not even a hill worth dying on anymore. <laughs> no point. Okay. I, I think the true <laughs> test of your your conversion to Britishness is how do you pronounce that lightweight alloy that they make planes and some cars out of? Oh, you mean aluminum? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I still can't say aluminium. <laughs> right. No, your accent is fine, and Windows is a virus. So. <laughs> well, every time I teach my class, when we get into the plumbing section, I say solder, and they say solder. Yeah. So every someone's got to correct me every time I say that when we, you know. So yeah. It, they also call them things. routers and not routers. Yeah, that routers, is, routers. Uh, exactly. Yeah. What's wrong with these guys? I don't know. Yeah. So, it, because you take a you drive a route between place A and place B. No, you That's don't. What it is. No, no <laughs> router, a, a route is something violent. You know, a, a route oh, is a I journey that right. you take. <laughs> uh, see, it's already started. Uh, it, it's, uh, yeah, and Matthew and I have been at this um, for a while. Um, I am, I am sure that at some point he is going to convert. Mm. to to the right way of seeing things, which is getting rid of uh, getting rid of all the Microsoft products, joining the Apple team. Uh, he's going to going to have an American accent. I'll see the light, <laughs> right? Maybe not a Southern accent. I don't think I'll get him mm. to go that far. Don't go that far. Yeah. The, the day so, I the day I managed to slip "yarl" into a conversation naturally exactly. is the day I get a knife and okay. put it into my throat. That's true. Okay, you you deserve it for pronouncing "y'all." Quite the way you did. <laughs> I don't think I could say it the way you did. That you just was, that can't was really win. impressive. It's too that posh, was, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it really was. It, it didn't have enough uh, fresh off the turnip truck. About All right. It, really. So, so, okay, Matthew, um, somewhere there's a, a list of things that we really wanted to talk about and not mm-hmm. bore our listeners with a. Uh, you know, no, with, they've with, switched off already. Anyway, the real <laughs> hard ones, the only ones that right. are left now. The three yes. hardcore ones. That, that's right. <laughs> get to the article for God's yeah, sake. Yeah, let, let's get to your list. So, <laughs> yeah. so you um, you you wrote a blog post titled "What Happens After People Leave the Church." Two years ago, almost no, eighteen months ago, you you wrote this. Um, so, listeners, if you go and search, literally what happens after people leave the church you're very likely to to find that blog post if you throw clint haycock or um or mindshift podcast into those that search phrase you're much more likely to to hit it so um tell us about this this list uh, clint what what is the purpose behind it where what's it serve and and how is it um, matured over the past 18 months yeah, I was just going to say that it's actually on Medium. If you go on medium.com and do a search, that that's where you can find the article. I actually wrote wrote this article goes back about probably four or five years ago, but I posted it on Medium a couple of years ago. I can see now it's the 30th of October 2018 when it was posted on Medium, but it was on my website probably a couple of years before that. Okay. Wh- what it was about is I, I was kind of focused on my own deconstruction and my own journey out and I kind of, I, I guess I had this limited view that my story was the only one. That was the only possible path. But I was I was part of a Facebook group for the, it used to be called the Exvangelical Podcast. I'm not sure if it's still running anymore, but I was in that group for a long time. And we used to get into a lot of discussions. There was probably about four or 5,000 people in that group when I was a part of it a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. 
And I used to love my, I mean, I'm a teacher. I can't help it. I love to start discussions and dialogues and get people involved in chats and things. So I started dropping these questions in the group about since you've left the church, what, what's your path? What's, what's your journey been? Let's just talk about it. And off the back of that Facebook thread came this article because I started getting so many responses and they were so different. I thought, okay, again, the academic academician in me, I've got to categorize this and kind of write this stuff down. And so these responses on the article are actually mostly from people within the exvangelical Facebook group. And these are the responses. I just started kind of putting them into a spectrum as I started to see it. What happens after people leave the church? And it's not just one single answer. There's a lot. I've come up with 16 different kind of possible paths, and there's more being added all the time. I started off with about eight, so I added seven or eight more as I got more and more responses. So to me, it's absolutely fascinating. It looks like, just so that you know, if you've still got friends in the evangelical community, the podcast is still up and uh, I think it is still it went off the air for a content. while. That was part. That's another long story. But when it went off the air, the group was getting kind of unsafe and, in my view, kind of toxic. I left hmm. the group, and so I, I don't know what's happening in that community much anymore. I've I've switched more onto focusing on cult psychology doing talking to people mm -hmm. out of cult so I've, I've broadened out into this whole other spectrum uh from when i started about two or three four years ago i know that uh i was listening to mindshift in the run-up uh, to mindshift podcast in the run-up to the show and one of the things that uh, i found intriguing about your podcast is how much background research you've done into cults to mm -hmm. uh, to identifying uh, you know, various aspects of cults and and ways to look at cults from a number of academic standpoints. Um, uh, the uh, the bite acronym, mm -hmm. just uh, just as a for instance. And uh, so I hope the listeners will take that to heart, because if they have an interest in what it means to deconvert from a cult-like environment, uh, or, or if they need help and they're, they're on their way out, they're deconstructing, um, you've got some podcasts there that they should listen to. So uh, mm -hmm. that's Mindscape Podcast, and uh, our listeners should go and, uh, go and subscribe. Yeah, and I've actually got some articles on Medium that I've posted where I talk about sort of cult psychology and unpacking some of those other issues and i think mm. looking back on this article i can see now i'm tracing my own development because i was so focused on the deconstruction of my theological beliefs and my sort of system of thinking that that's all i was focused on two or three years ago and as i've changed one of the areas of deconstruction is as you say learning the cult psychology of it and going wow so that's another piece because something of someone told me he said what you got to do is you've got to unpick the conditioning you've got to mm -hmm. understand how you were manipulated how you were controlled how you were psychologically managed or whatever in your religion or cult when you start to do that then you start to disempower what they did to you and you can start to rebuild and reconstruct so that's really been my focus and that has resonated with a, a, a lot of people that are saying, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. After almost 15 years, maybe a little more than 15 years of, uh, of being an atheist, I found that particular advice um, to be 
really good wording of mm-hmm. the experience that I'm that I'm going through. It's nice to have a discrete phrase to put around uh, to put around the path that you're taking, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's deconstructing your own programming, uh, understanding what a cult did, uh, how you were programmed to. Um, exactly which confirmation biases mm-hmm. you're, you're most subject to. And uh, so, yeah, it's good advice. And, uh, and it's, uh, I hope some of the listeners will go and, and subscribe. Because uh, mm-hmm. I think you've got an interesting, I think you've got an interesting view that ought to be listened to. Thank you. It's uh, interesting here, the word deconstruction passed around. Because, yeah, from my perspective, deconstruction seems to have been the the word now that's the adopted word of of choice but a couple of years ago it wasn't a word that i heard very much and when mm. i was going through my own you know, 12 years ago now i used the word deconversion because it seemed to be the obvious word i converted to and then i'm going away so it's a deconversion so it just seemed mm. to be the obvious thing and no spell checker in the world was accepting that as as an acceptable word and um mm. on, on my own personal blog confessions of a yak i even wrote a post saying what do i call this thing is it mm. deconstruction is there were a word for it and I fished around and I couldn't really find a word that that made sense. But now mm-hmm. deconstruction has, seems to become the the adopted word, and I I'm very happy with that. I, I embrace that word. I think that's a far more accurate word than than deconversion. Do you have any thoughts about the, how we have landed on that word at all? Yes, uh, the actual word, from what I can understand in ling- linguistics and philosophy, it goes back to Derrida. And that's where you'll find he's the one. I don't know if he coined that word, but his books are very, very difficult to understand. They're really, uh, he's like a postmodern philosopher or linguist. And he he applied this to sort of philosophy and language and arguments. And I think that's where the idea of, because you can actually find uh, deconstructionist uh, interpretations of scripture. You know, so it's, it's a, uh-huh. it is a thing even within the Christian uh, biblical scholars and theologians who will say, well, what we're going to do here is we're going to look at four or five possible interpretations of a, of a passage or a book or something, and we're going to deconstruct the strengths and weaknesses of each one and compare them to each other and sort of break them down, you know? And so that, that's, that is a thing. It's been going on for a long time in linguistics and philosophy, going back to Derrida. So to, to look at your own Christian beliefs and say, I'm going to deconstruct them, I'm going to subject them to a pretty se- severe critique uh, as objectively as I can, that's certainly something that could fit in with this idea of deconstruction, I think. Mm-hmm. And very often, Christian traditions um, do all they can do to fight against the idea that you should examine your Christian mm-hmm. beliefs very closely. It's, it, yeah. it's, um, there's a stigma that can be levied against, uh, a member of a church who asks too many questions just to avoid, uh, the very thing that's facing Christianity now, a lot of deconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Well, and, and what's, what's fascinating about my, my spectrum of 16 possible sort of paths is it goes from, I kind of set it up from number one to number 16, where you've got number one, they're all deconstructing in some capacity, but 
It's what do you do about it? Because number one on the list is someone who wants to stay a Christian who's, let's say, fed up with sort of the institutional church and wants mm-hmm. to re- remold church in a more of a New Testament sort of Acts sort of church way. Mm-hmm. And then you go all the way to the end of the spectrum. You got someone who's deconstructed. They're, maybe they're an angry atheist or they're an angry theist or something like that. So you've gone all the way through. So we all tend to respond differently to uh, deconstruction. You know, I, I know, God, and I used to be in that camp too for a long time. I was trying to help the church and sort of reform the church. And, you know, I was deconstructing, but I really believed in the idea of the church. And I, I don't I don't see that in fitting in in any way to what I'm doing now. You know, I don't want to prop up the system anymore. Right. And I, I don't know that it's appropriate for this show, but maybe we can have you back to mm. talk about um, what Christianity is replaced with, because there are a lot of moral and ethical implications to walking away from whatever Christian denomination you were in. You sort of get all of your views about the world and how to treat other people as a nice tight bundle that you can just mm. adopt and you don't have to do a lot of thinking about what it means to be an ethical human being, right? You just mm. follow the sort of recipe that your denomination offers you. And and there's some real enticement to do that because when you're following that recipe, you also get that community, mm. right? And when someone walks away from, from whatever Christian denomination they walk away from, um, you have to sort of figure out, do I walk away and keep all of those moral and ethical views? Because, uh, at least in my experience, I don't, I don't know if you had the same experience, but part of, part of deconstructing was questioning all of those things and having to figure out what I really thought mm. about, uh, about large ethical issues. And, um, so like I said, maybe we can have you back if mm. you, you know, if you're interested to talk about, uh, how you do that, mm. right. And, and what happened in, in your particular case. Well, and in, a, in a, yeah, Sorry. in a, in a healthy way, because yeah. one thing I learned from being a part of that group on Facebook was that for a cu- first couple of years, it was super helpful because I found myself in a large community. We all had the same or similar backstories. I'm like, yes, there's, there's thousands of us out here. I, I'm connecting with all these people, but it, it became toxic. I think because we were just kind of festering in the anger and the bitterness and the rage mm-hmm. and, and rightly so. <laughs> like sure. you said, there's a lot of stuff to be pissed off about, but if you stay in that phase for years and years, that can become very unhealthy and toxic. Yeah. So right. you've got to think about where you're going. Someone said to me, what do you want to do with your anger? Do you just want to sit in it forever? That That's not necessarily very healthy for your own mental health and for the people around you. So you got to kind of think about where am I going with this thing? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'd like to challenge upon something you just said earlier, Andrew. I'm not sure that the phrase replace Christianity with something is necessarily a helpful phrase because Mm. for uh, a lot of people, especially those who are suffering from religious trauma, the last thing they want to be told is replace this thing Mm. um, which which has really hurt you uh, with, with, with something else because you're kind of sorry I need to backtrack there because I'm tracking myself into a corner here um 
I think if you say replace Christianity with something, to a lot of people, they're going to see you're giving value to Christianity. And to those who have been traumatized and hurt by Christianity, if you're giving Christianity value, then they're going to back away from, from what it is that you're trying to say. So I'm, I kind of feel that maybe the phrase replace Christianity with something is not necessarily the right phrase, because I take the view I've dumped Christianity, I've left it behind, I don't need to replace it with anything. Mm. I'm, quite, I'm quite good in my life, actually. There isn't a gap there that needs to be filled now that I've dumped Christianity. I've just let go of a backpack that was weighing me down, and I'm better off for it. I don't need a new one. Yeah, so, I mean, we can talk about the semantics of language mm. there. Uh, but in the end, uh, I think what you're describing is the emotional response that people have to the harm of Christianity. And uh, Matthew, as you know, uh, I work as a, uh, as a hotline agent for recovering from religion. And we certainly don't quite describe it that way to a, to a, to a caller that, that calls in and says, look, I just need to talk about the fact that I was abused by my Sunday school teacher or, uh, you know, my parents wouldn't let me be, educated uh, in, in a healthy environment because, uh, you know, because they, they had some Christian view about public education. Or, uh, you know what, one of my siblings died because my family was anti-vaxxers. You know, we, those, in those kinds of conversations, we don't talk about replacing Christianity. But if you're going to walk away the the practical bit of this is that you do have to deconstruct. And in order to deconstruct, you have to replace those thought processes with something else. No, that, that's, that's a fair response. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would say going back to my spectrum, uh, it's about not staying in one path forever. You could start out number one, go to number five, end up at number seven on the list and, and sure. still be still be moving. I, I can see myself. I started out as that number one, you know, I was so dedicated to reforming the church, I, but then no one was listening to me and I got, you know, I got fed up. Then I moved around. I became an angry theist for a while. You know, um, I'm more of an agnostic, I guess you could say. I'm still not sure where I'm at on the, the whole question of God's existence, but I'm certainly not a Christian anymore. So I can see I've moved down the list or down the spectrum and I'm not. I, I'm not saying I'm. I'm arrived, and I'm never going to move from where I'm at now either. No, and but, I'm pretty much the same. I was very. I was very low down in the numbers on on your list because I, I don't think anybody who deconstructs um, wakes up one morning and goes, you know what. I've had enough. I'm going to leave. You know, I'm it, walking it, away. It, it, it never happens just like that. It's it's always a, a, a creeping sensation of, of doubt and a, and a seeking to explain those doubts. I don't I genuinely don't believe there is anybody out there who left Christianity because right at the start they wanted to leave Christianity. You know, it's a, because the whole reason why you buy into it is because you've, you you like this, you take comfort from it, you've, you've bought into the whole beliefs, you you enjoy the community, you in, you like the rituals, uh, you possibly even enjoy singing the songs. People don't, people want to be in it, which is why they're in it. And it's the, it's the problems that it causes them, which causes them to question and uh, eventually leave. Uh, I, I don't think anybody ever 
starts off by by one by looking for a way out if people just wanted to leave they just not go uh, so i i was definitely uh, up there in wanting to salvage uh, the the doubts that i had uh, and re- remain a christian and uh, i'm pretty sure you know, as i said most people start off that way i would classify myself probably as about number nine on your list now that i've i have left the church i've given up on on, on god or there's i'm not sure i'd quite call it that but i've certainly uh turned my back on faith i identify as uh, as atheist and i genuinely don't see uh how i could go back i wouldn't necessarily say i've shut the door but it, mm-hmm. it's I, I i don't see how that door I can't see would open either. again no. <laughs> uh, so but yeah there's that, been a clear what, break yes and that, that's what you know we look at number nine on this spectrum someone who's become sort of an atheist or agnostic you definitely no longer identify as a christian you have no desire to go back and you're saying, okay, now for sure there's been a break. Yeah. Before I had a hand in it, maybe I was, you know, no, no more. <laughs> and then where do you go from there? Yeah. Do you think there's um, a case for doing something like the the seven steps of grief or or whatever it is, doing some the, the X steps of uh, deconversion where where people go through these shifts? Because I certainly went through a, an angry stage you know oh, I, yeah. uh, in in those early years after walking away i i carry carried anger you know i i was indoctrinated into this false belief i've wasted so many years on it i've plowed mm-hmm. so many resources into this and and look where i am now look look where it's got me i had an awful lot of anger and then after the anger there was the shame and the embarrassment that oh no i used to be a young earth creationist really how could i have possibly been so uneducatedly stupid and there really was quite a lot of embarrassment around that and now i just i've i'm at peace with my past i i accept it i can say the phrase i used to be a young earth creationist without any sense of uh, anger embarrassment or or irony uh, whatsoever and i'm i'm comfortable with my past because i can't change it would do i wish it could have been different yes can i do anything about it no no so it's pointless me expending um, unhelpful emotions uh, on it but I need to also accept that there are people who are behind me on that road who will go through those emotions. And if there's anything I can do to, to help them through those troubled waters, I will do what I can. Well, that's it. Because as you go further down my spectrum, you get past that number nine where you're at and you start getting into the angry atheist type of phase. And some people just stay there forever, you know, and that's that's I don't know if that's a, a helpful place to stay. You, like you said, yeah. is it, yes, you need to work through the anger. I, I've worked through it. I feel grief and loss and sadness and betrayal and all those other emotions. And I was there for a long time. I was so angry. And then someone said to me, you can't live angry. Well, you can, but it's so unhealthy. Yeah. You know, and that's when I started, I go, okay, I need to, that's when the reconstruction piece really started opening up to me. And I thought, okay. What we need to do is actually reconstruct after deconstruction. That's to me, that's the key. You got to have both of those start rebuilding your life, reconstructing mm-hmm. your identity, whatever the phrase is. Uh, you can't stay angry. Well, you can. That's the sad part. There's a lot of people who just stay angry. Well, and to to be fair to, to Christianity, um, you can be an angry Christian just like sure. you can be an angry atheist, right? Absolutely. And, and this is somehow this just seems to be um, 
some part of the unhealthy aspect of of human existence that um, we can be angry and somehow not get the help we need mm-hmm. to 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 say you know what yes I've been angry but I can live a more productive more compassionate more giving more engaged more loving life all of the things that Christianity would promote I can do all of that as an atheist Mm-hmm. If I'm not angry about Christianity, that's mm. it. What are we so angry about? Because, as you say, that what drives so many Christians is this this compulsion that God is watching them, that they have to do things for God, for the church, for others. You know, and so there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, a lot of PTSD that comes along with that. <laughs> religious scrupulosity, religious trauma syndrome. I think someone mentioned. I mean. It's it, it's a potentially very unhealthy religion. It really is in yeah. terms of mental health. No wonder people are stressed out. God's God's reading your thoughts all the time. So every thought that I have could be a sin. In addition to right. every action that I do, so I've got to search my soul, search my heart all the time because God's watching. God knows every thought. I mean, God, I don't want to live like that anymore, man. No, Clint, do you listen to these to the Unbelievable podcast on Premier Christian Radio? Uh, I haven't come across it yet, but it sounds like something to listen to. Yeah, I make a joke about it. I say it's the only religious podcast that I listen to religiously. Um, right. It's it, you presumably you're familiar with Premier Christian Radio in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, well, Unbelievable is a uh, well, started off as a Saturday uh, radio show uh, by uh, Justin Brierley, who, who is a Christian. His uh, w- wife is a, a pastor, minister, whatever the right word is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it migrated to a podcast about 10 years ago. So he's been running this show for about 14 years maybe now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, 2006 is when it started. Um, wow. And um, so it's about an hour and a half weekly show and it's uh, it's is usually a a christian and a non-christian though though sometimes it will be Mm. two christians or something and it's generally i i listen to probably 98 percent of of the podcast every now and then there'll be one that i go no i just can't do this but but most of the time i i I will listen to it um anyway the reason why i bring it up they have recently done a, a couple of shows on um uh, how Christianity is is good for the world. There was a recent uh, debate uh, with a, the question, which I think is is the wrong question to ask. But the question uh, on the title was, uh, "Can atheism atheism deliver a, a better world?" World. Mm. And there's a couple of blog posts uh, that followed that on the Premier website. You know, basically are making the argument that uh, Christianity is is good for us. I think uh, Chris Goswani wrote one of them. He said, "Whether you believe it or not, Chris." Uh, Christianity or religion, I can't remember which one he used, uh, is, is good for you. And um, yeah, it, it, I, okay. I, my response is, is is to laugh as well. And here we are talking about how people are traumatized by uh, religious experience. And I'll put my hand up. Uh, when I was a Christian, I had no idea that such a, a case of people existed. Mm. When I was going through my own deconversion, it took approximately three years I had still had no idea. I started following blogs of people who had left, and one of them in particular uh, is, a, is an ex-pastor, uh, Bruce Grenster. Uh, I've probably butchered his surname. Uh, he's an ex-pastor. If you can work out how to spell his surname, I recommend that you search, search him out. He's uh, got a blog of all sorts of uh, horrible stories. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and but he was the only name that I'd really come across that uh, was expressing uh, uh, what what could be described as trauma from his, his religion. But there were a couple of people who would regularly comment on this blog who people would talk about their own religious trauma. But while I was going through my deconversion, those people and those comments didn't really register to me. And it's only now mm-hmm. that I'm fully out and I've been going and I've been getting over the last two years now, I've been very involved in in uh, in podcasting and uh, finding and digging out more and more uh, ex-believer podcasts and hearing the conversations. There is a ridiculous number of former Christians who are experiencing very, very negative religious trauma. And I had mm. no idea there was this huge number of people out there. Uh, and it's only in the recent years that it's really be- become a, a solid fact to, to me that I've mm. seen how many of the these people there are. And when I see Christians touting how grateful the world and how grateful humanity Christianity is, and I balance it on the other hand with my knowledge of all these people, uh, it just doesn't work and if you're a christian listening to this regardless of what else we say please do go out and pay attention to the number of people who have left christianity for trauma and go and read their stories there are some Mm. horrible horrible stories of of trauma and of of people suffering and ask yourself the very serious question what do you do with a religion which drives people uh, away in such a, a terrible terrible uh, emotional state because this is something that i really want christians to be aware of because so many way too many christians just simply aren't aware of this huge proportion of the population mm. yeah massive well and it's so ironic i i always come back to that point this is supposed to be something that is about love and enlightenment and forgiveness and freedom and mental health and everything and it, it gives us the exact opposite in so many cases, as you say. Right. It's so much trauma and so much, I mean, abuse, spiritual abuse, and we're not even touching on the sexual abuse in, in you know, Catholicism and Christianity, and, and not just those religions, but the patriarchy, the misogyny, the religious trauma syndrome, the anxiety, the depression, the PTSD, on and on and on. I mean, if God's behind all that, doesn't he know human nature the best so that he can prescribe a system that actually works for everybody? Then where, where's all this trauma coming from? Well, they'll say it's it's the human's fault. It's the the people, the leaders who are, they've twisted it. It was something pure, but now it's been twisted. <laughs> it's just really there's always an answer, isn't there? Well, and that and that answer uh, somehow always blames the individual. I was going to say you and I, but I don't I don't specifically mean that it that it yeah, blames people. atheists, right? It blames the individual and. And sort of a sort of a case in point here. So I'll I'll stay off of the uh, sexual abuse uh, that is rampant in the Jehovah's Witnesses and Catholics and that oh, kind of yeah, thing. And just and just talk about the the anxiety that the LGBTQI plus community is experiencing in the mm-hmm. uh, in the Methodist Church right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Methodist Church in the United States, well, I guess worldwide, is is on the verge of splitting. They mm-hmm. only barely survived the vote uh, over whether it was acceptable to live a homosexual life. I mean, Christianity may be the only the only kind of organization in the world that can harm you sexually without ever touching you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So much damage. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so that was a little tongue in cheek, but yeah. it, it's it's uh 
it's it's hard to see um, how it can be claimed. Back to your point, Matthew. It's hard to see how Christianity, or maybe it was your point, Clint. So apologies. Someone. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's hard to see how Christianity can be considered um, an overall force for good in mm. the world. Um, when you can see entire communities of people, and especially those who are most vulnerable, like like children, uh, and and yes, I'll I'll say the LGBTQ mm-hmm. community, uh, they are vulnerable because they have been ostracized mm-hmm. for a long time, and not and not just by Christianity, but by all three of the monotheistic. Uh, major monotheism. Absolutely. Religions. I was going to say all the Abrahamic religions are very yeah. pat- patriarchal, misogynistic. Well, and it, it, going into this issue of dominion theology and all the stuff that's going on right now in the Trump administration with the Evangelical Advisory Board, they're pushing what they call family values, which sounds good, but what they mean is one man, one woman in a monogamous marriage. So right. heterosexual marriage only gay marriage, same-sex marriage, absolutely not. Transgender, no way. So you got to unpack all that. They're pushing and driving that agenda for the nation, and that's their Christian worldview. So, yeah, going right along with your point. Yeah. In fact, uh, uh, some of the listeners know I've got a a young daughter. Uh, She's Mm -hmm. eight months old now. And one of the things that we have failed to do in the United States is passed the equal rights amendment from the seventies. And, and the justice department under president Trump has blocked the archivist of the United States from adding the equal rights amendment. This is, you know, this came up back in the seventies when women needed equal rights. Mm -hmm. The, the justice department has just in the last few weeks, blocked the archivist of the United States from adding the Equal Rights Amendment to the amendments of the Constitution of the United States. Mm. So here's what we're really saying. In our current political religious environment, because I really don't know how to separate them today. Yeah, not in America well, for sure. Right, right. That, okay, so that, that's fair. And that different, is all... different in the UK for sure, isn't it? And Europe. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm buying my plane ticket after we hang up here. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, wait but, a couple of months though. There'll be a few. Half of us well, will be dead. <laughs> well, yeah, well, look, we're we're headed. Pandemic way, strikes. That's right. But, but oh, what I apologise, users, listeners, for that joke. That was probably in bad taste. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so what we're saying is, half of the population of the United States that half that just happens to have two X chromosomes mm-hmm. doesn't deserve equal rights. And, and we should all be appalled. should be shouting it from the rooftops. We, we, should, we should be absolutely enraged today mm. in, in, in March of 2020 that the United States as a, as a political power and economic power on the world stage is willing to not pass the Equal Rights Amendment. Yeah, and if, if you do a little bit of digging, you'll find that the people who are pushing that agenda, a lot of them are those evangelical leaders who have That's the right. ear of the president. 
because you can go back to the 70s. There were three main uh, planks in that e- the politicization of the evangelical base. That's what they were trying to do to get Ronald Reagan elected and some of these other things going on back in the 70s. The ERA was one, homosexual rights and abortion. Those were the three big ticket right. items. And they were people like Jerry Falwell Sr. with the moral majority and all that. That goes back to 1979. So this thing with the ERA is nothing new. As you say, it goes back decades. And those were the ones driving it back then. And they're still doing it. Guys like James Dobson, Focus on the Family, and all these other people that are involved in politics and have been for a long time. So what's held it up all these decades from being passed? Well, they've been pushing that agenda, haven't they? They have, and and that's an interesting question. Um, so, Clint, you'll have to you'll have to help me with my civics here because government uh, high school government was a long time ago for me. Long time ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, but I think an amendment to the Constitution requires a two thirds state majority. It has to be ratified by two thirds of states, but it might be three fourths. Mm. Um, so one so one of our listeners can write in and. And uh, or, or Clint, do you do you remember whether it's two thirds or three fourths? I don't know the actual number, but I know it's been an, it's been a plank in the evangelical political side, the Christian right, I guess you could say. Right. So they've got the ear of not they they've either had the, the ear of a particular president or people in Congress or s- the uh, senators to continue to battle against the, this legislation for That's a long right. time, for decades, really. Right. And so, Matthew, to to answer that question specifically, we were close to having the proper state majority a number of times. And some states backed away. I think Wyoming did. I've got a list of what states uh, ratified the ERA and then backed away. There were four or five of them. So we were right on the verge. And in 2019, so uh, just a few weeks ago, the state house in Virginia, the, the Virginia state legislature approved the Equal Rights Amendment, and it was the final state needed to uh, to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. And it was at that point uh, when we when we finally got to that. Uh, I'm almost sure it's two thirds majority. When we got to that two thirds majority, the Trump Justice Department stepped in and said, "Well." It's taking you too long, so we're blocking the archivist of the United States from adding the Equal Rights Amendment as an amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Mm-hmm. As, as if giving half of the population equal rights should ever have a time limit. <laughs> okay, okay, so I'm just, I guess I'm, a, I guess I'm on record now. But so, Clint, I want to ask you and get away from from politics. What kind of atheist uh, are you? Are you the are you the weak atheist? Um, I'm not convinced that there is a God, or are you the strong atheist? There is no God. I would say I'm more of an agnostic. I would say I'm not (laughs) sure if there is a God. If there is a God, I've got a lot of questions and problems with that God. But part of it is I'm trying to figure out: Am I reacting against the God that I was taught? You know, mm. as a kid growing mm. up and, and in my church experience, because I've got a friend who reminds me of that all the time when I'll post something on Facebook, a, a rant about something. He'll turn around and say, now, what you're actually reacting against is your sort of fundamentalist background and not all 
streams of Christianity are certainly like that. So I've got a lot of questions. I've done a lot of writing and thinking about the God of the Bible and, you know, the implications of the way the, the text presents that God. Uh, so I'm still working through a lot of that. I'm not sure if I'm ready to jettison that yet, but if if I do have a belief in God, I got a lot of problems with with that God. I'm with you. I was raised on a, a very conservative God view, right? He, mm-hmm. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He sits inside your head and watches every thought. Got to tell you, that one scared me. Uh, the whole time I was growing up, you know, there's a there's a God sitting inside my skull watching watching my thoughts like a movie, you know, or, or, or however, he, however he recording watches. everything too. Right, right, exactly, and yeah. and so I I can I can say that sometimes I do react pretty strongly to to that kind of view of a God. Then I kind of want to ask your friend. If there is a more kind, loving, benevolent creator of the universe, why isn't he stomping out these other views of him? <laughs> where, where, he, where he's a, a mean, hateful, bigoted guy in the sky with his thumb on everybody just waiting to rub us out when we, when we commit the slightest transgression, right? Yeah. So if there's, a, if there's a kinder God, I want him to show up too. You know, just, just make, That's make it. yourself known. Well, going back to my spectrum in the article, uh, mm. number, number 11 is sort of a deistic position. And I think that that works for a lot of people because you could go back to the deistic thought and say, you know, there there is a God. He created everything or set it in motion, set the evolutionary process in motion, and then he left. So there is a God, but he's not involved. And that explains a lot of the natural disasters and the, the coronavirus right now. Why isn't God stopping mm-hmm. it? Why did he allow it? Because he's gone. He's fucked off. I mean, he's, you know, he's not around right. anymore. So you kind of get your, you have your cake and eat it too. I, I can see the appeal of that deistic sort of view. I mean, I, I don't personally agree with it, but I can see the appeal because it gives you a God, but it answers a lot of the problems of evil too. And why doesn't God show up and explain who he is? Because he's gone. He's not around anymore. I don't know where Matthew, he is. What what view of God did your family present when they were in Zambia when you were a kid? Was it was it a nice, kind God, or or was it more of the sinners in the hands of an angry God uh, kind of God? Um, oh, crumbs! I have to remember. Uh, for, for the context behind that question, uh, Clint, is I grew up in missionary uh, environment in Zambia in the 70s. Oh, very so, nice. so my, my childhood my childhood was in, in Zambia and then I came to the UK at uh, 18 years old to, to make my, my way in the world. Um, I'm most of my my God teaching was uh, at school. I went to a boarding school uh, uh, up in the northwestern province of Zambia. And um, it was a missionary, it was a school for missionaries that had quite an, an American influenced uh, education, which uh, I, I can pretty much, I, can, I see that now. I didn't realize it so much at the time, but I can really see it now. There are a lot of American missionaries uh, in the country, I think. There must have been, of a school of about 100 pupils, I reckon possibly 30% were, um, uh, were Americans, uh, possibly, I think, around about that. So it was very much it was a young earth uh, creationist uh, uh, god and it, it was a loving god but um it was a calvinist version of a loving god mm-hmm. um, and it it's very easy to tell uh, a, a child a preteen child that 
this is a loving God. Uh, but um, looking back at it now, I am. Um, I I don't see it. Uh, but the school itself, the school had quite a strong discipline uh, ethos uh, to the point where you know children were were, were paddled with a, uh, the equivalent of a of a wooden spoon, um, mm. and uh, there were some children who were utterly utterly miserable. There, I do remember some children who were utterly utterly miserable, and uh, some friends of mine. I I didn't really realise it at the time. I found out years later, but they were only there for two terms, and I didn't really understand why and it wasn't until years later that uh, when I was an adult and I was having a conversation with their father uh, and he said to me we're uh, driving the children to school and um, one of the children's in the back of the car and he said I want to jump out of the car and he said that just broke his wife's heart and she in that moment said this is it I'm finding another school for the children uh, and that was why they were taken out, out from school and there were there were other children who just didn't have a pleasant time there. I just got on with it and I just adapted. You know, I wasn't the rebellious type child. I just accepted what was going on because I I didn't know any better. But there were some children who were a bit more rebellious and they challenged it and questioned mm. it and they genuinely had a miserable time there. But I can only see that by looking back. I, I didn't really see it at the time. I just thought that the reason why they're being miserable is because they're being disobedient. That was the only way as a young child I had of uh, interpreting uh, their behavior. Now, see, that's a fascinating case study, because as you were describing your going up to growing up in Zambia, I was thinking about why isn't Christian education the best educational experience? It should be. <laughs> if yeah. it's if God's behind it, I was reading through the other day uh, the Bob Jones University uh, student rule book. Don't ask me why. There's a long story, <laughs> but I started reading, and it's about a seventy or eighty page document. And I I just kept reading, and it I was just dumbfounded at how restrictive and how unbelievably rule oriented this. And this is a university where adults are going to learn the Bible. Obviously, it's a fundamentalist university, Bible college. And I thought, my God, I grew up in Christian schools. It was similar. We had hair codes and we had dress codes and we had all these things. You know, I thought, what? how does that relate to God producing these wonderful adults? We all came out of there with re- with religious trauma, essentially. Right. How is right. that possible? But people, again, will say, well, that's humanity's fault for twisting something that was pure. But yet they're claiming this is God's way of educating children and adults. It's so dysfunctional. Mm. Claire, you'll be familiar with Christian colleges in the United States. Mm. Um, and yeah, I went to Bible college. Okay, right. Me, me too, before I um, figured out that there's actually better education than that. Uh, <laughs> di- different story. I'm going to leave that one. Um, but I got a, uh, a nephew. And just recently, he attended Pensacola Christian College. So I don't. Oh don't mind. yeah. They okay. Okay. Far right than Bob Jones. They think Bob Jones is liberal. <laughs> okay. So you so you know them. Oh, I know Pensacola. Yeah. Okay. So I'll just I'll just say for the listeners, you were you were talking about how restrictive Jones is. Right? Mm-hmm. Um. So my nephew, and it's okay. I'll just I'll just leave him unnamed because mm-hmm. he doesn't he doesn't deserve to be splashed with my podcasting. Uh, but he was attending Pensacola. He was uh, uh, a mechanical engineering student, and 
in his dorm room, they would not allow him access to things like Khan Academy or uh, hmm. to iTunes U. So mm-hmm. it, just for those students who, uh, you know, want a different, who want to get some real study in outside of a class, you know, and they want to watch a college lecture from another professor to, to sort of help them uh, ground themselves in whatever the material is, whether it's history or, or calculus or whatever, mm-hmm. iTunes U's got good content. He couldn't access iTunes U from his dorm room. He had to, he had to go to his uncle's house mm-hmm. in order to be able to adequate, to adequately study. All, yeah, it was all blocked basically on, it, on yeah, campus. Yeah, it was yeah all yeah. firewalled. Yeah, and it it is just it is. I can understand uh, setting up a proxy to block certain kinds of internet content. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't I, don't misunderstand me. I I am a big proponent of freedom of speech, and and I'm not I'm not suggesting that they should. I am suggesting that I understand it, but. <laughs> to block, uh, you know, to block other universities' education content, stuff that is entirely unobjectionable was just, it, it was, it was shocking. Uh, but it, it's it, explainable, it's explainable if you look at it from that, like you were saying, the BITE model, the mm. I, it's an mm. acronym, behavior control, which is, a, which is one of the markers of cults, information control, which mm-hmm. is another marker of cults, thought control, which you got to police your own thoughts, you have accountability groups, and then you have emotional control. And mm. so you could tick off the four markers of that Stephen Hassan's uh, model of cults. And Bob Jones fits all four of those. Pensacola Bible College fits all four of those. They're controlling the flow of information to their students. That's that's what cults do. Mm. The I and the T are really closely related, aren't they? Oh, Absolutely. Mm. If you can, can control the flow of information and then the, the the whole thing is set up by this sort of cult of confession, you know, the, the leadership sets the, the impossible standards to which you cannot live up to these standards, then, of course, you fail, then you sin, you've got to ask for forgiveness, you confess your sins, and, you know, you've got to police your own thoughts and honor, and you go down this ever-descending spiral, and you're never going to, you're never going to succeed in it. Yeah, yeah. Is it fair to link this um, this restriction of other knowledge, for lack of a better phrase, uh, and fundamentalism to the uh, Genesis 1 narrative of the Garden of Eden and the fruit of the tree of knowledge is a bad thing? Is there a, a connection there, or am I just seeing connections where they don't exist? You're just making it up, man. I don't know. <laughs> Okay. Actually, no. That's a good thought. I've never thought of that. Maybe that's maybe there's some something to it. That, that might be a that's a postmodern hmm. sort of interpretation. You're deconstructing. See, Derrida, would be, <laughs> he'd be proud of you. <laughs> there, there is something interesting in that, Matthew. That the there is the idea from from the heart of Genesis. I, I don't. Clint, were you ever a young Earth creationist? Matthew and I both were. Um. Uh, sort of. I was never really taught it, you know, deliberately. I guess I mm. just sort of picked it up. 
I just always believed that the text was basically historically accurate and, you know, factually true and all the rest of it. Gotcha. Gotcha. So in some sense, the genealogies just sort of suggest that the earth is pretty young. That's it. Yeah. That's how they came. That's how they obviously arrived at it when they just added up all the genealogies and got back to about six to 10,000 years. And well, that's when creation happened. So that's it. Right. Problem solved. So there, there is Matthew. I think you're right that there's a, a fear, of knowledge that that starts early. Even, even mm-hmm. if it's not, um, even if it's not so insidious right up front that that there's still knowledge today that, uh, you know that that somehow kills us. But certainly there's this idea that certain kinds of knowledge lead to sin, mm-hmm. and. And so maybe um, maybe that's not maybe that's not a very far stretch actually. That would make well, a see, good what, blog post somewhere, I think. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one of the other reasons why it's um, uh, occurring to me, I mean, it was the the idea popped into my head purely from the conversation you two were having. So it's a half formed thought anyway. Mm. Um, but something else that's occurred to me in this um, uh, in the last few minutes is. Um, because of the podcasts that we we do, still unbelievable, responding to unbelievable podcasts, and trying to to publicise the podcasts that we do to a Christian audience, is we've been contacted by people who are deconstructing, and one of them in particular has, has said certainly said to me, I can't remember if uh, it was on air to Andrew or, or rather in a, on a conversation with Andrew as well, or whether it was just me, but that's not relevant. But what this person did say to me was, they said that they were reading other books and there was good arguments and good knowledge that was conflicting with Christian belief and it was creating doubts well the response from the Christian was we'll stop reading those books then yeah Um, exactly so there is this this just if anything's causing a problem shut it down gouge out the eye you know it's this whole kind of it's basically the seeds of a cult isn't it cut yourself off from anything that that causes you to want to leave this little Mm -hmm. huddle that I've created for you Well, I remember yeah I remember getting it. I was, I used to work with a guy that was a painter and decorator and he was a, you know, pretty straight up conservative Christian. And I had just finished reading the Da Vinci code. And mm. I, I asked him one time, I said, Hey, have you ever read the Da Vinci code? I just finished it. And it was quite interesting. I wondered what you thought about that. And he immediately, he's a super mellow guy. He just exploded and went on this rant about, I don't read books like that. That's going to introduce seeds of doubt. I only read the Bible. And he just went on and on. I was kind of sitting there with, with my jaw open, like, whoa, whoa, exactly that same kind of response. I was completely shocked by that vehement response that he was so Because the Da Vinci Code made you question the Bible and, and Christianity and everything else. Mm-hmm. You guys may both remember that in the book of Acts, there's a book burning at Ephesus. Mm-hmm. And... When I was in Bible college, uh, I had a, a professor uh, who openly praised the book burning in the, in the <laughs> right. book of Acts. You know, we, we, they were doing the right thing. Right. We should uh, gather all those secular books, you know, we should burn them build up. A, right. Build a bonfire to the sky. <laughs> Just like in Florence, you know, Savonarola, they did the same thing, didn't they? The bonfire of the vanities. Yep. yep. Burn all the wicked and evil stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, amazing. And, yeah, it's quite shocking. It really is. Um, so, Clint, we've sort of uh, tackled a lot of topics in mm. more more or less an organic uh, fashion. But in regard to to your article, 
in regard to the to the 16 ways that people can deconvert what do you what do you want the listeners to hear most about deconstruction i would say that it's you're safe to explore multiple possibilities and that you you don't have to it's not like you have to pick one and say okay that's me for the rest of my life no you're going to shift potentially along a spectrum and so it, it's all about the journey. You know, I've had people come back to this article even two years later or so and say, okay, I was here two, three years ago. Now I can see that I've moved over to this other part of the spectrum, and I think I might not stay there either forever. Mm. And that, that's quite a freeing sort of thing, I think, to go, okay, yeah, I can see how I've moved and I've shifted. My own beliefs and my own worldview has changed as I continue to deconstruct and then reconstruct it's it's a process. It's a journey. Can you see? Uh, to, so we have some Christian listeners, and I I, I want to be as fair to them as I can. Well, Matthew, do we have Christian? Uh, hopefully, there must we've be got some. a few. If there must be. I, I I hope there is. If you're a Christian listener, please let us know. We we promise not to eat you. <laughs> Maybe your well, babies, Matthew. but 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 not you. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew promises. I, I don't necessarily. No. So, so wrong. <laughs> tell me, tell me this. In your view, I so most listeners probably know how I'd come at this, but but I I think it's fair to ask. Do you think it's possible to lead a Christian life and be to to be honest with the world around you to to see things rationally through the Christian lens? That's sorry, I know that's a big question. question. Yeah, sorry. It is, it's, because, it, well, you have to ask which Christian lens, of course. I mean, wh which one? <laughs> Fundamentalist, <right>. liberal, <laughs> you know. 35,000 Christian denominations exactly. in the world? Okay, pick one. Okay. You know, Lutheran, Calvinist, wh which lens, mm -hmm. you know? Right. Because right. that's, that's, I think, but I think that really gets at the heart of what we've been saying is that when people start to deconstruct or ask questions, they've got to look at their own theological context around them. That what what what's your belief system? What were you taught? What were, what was your theology? What what is your theology? And are you okay with that? Because I, I see now, even going to Bible college. Okay, I went to a fairly conservative evangelical Bible college in Portland, in Oregon. But what it did for me, though. It, it exposed me to other interpretations, other traditions, and that yeah. immediately opened up my world a lot bigger. And I thought, okay, so there's a lot of traditions, there's a lot of possibilities. That can only be a good thing, to be exposed to mm. other points of view. So even if mm. you stay a Christian and you realize that my tradition isn't necessarily the only one and it's not the only right one, um, I can look at other possibilities, and and that right there gives you permission to start to explore different streams and traditions. But mm -hmm. my Bible college, we didn't have any such enlightenment. Mm -hmm. um, it was Church of Christ, the the, the incredibly conservative uh, sort of southeastern Church of Christ. We were mm -hmm. a cult, um, and you know. Enlightenment was not a key feature of our study. Uh, it was about why we were right, not about uh, not about 
educating students on how to be cosmopolitan in their views, which which is hopefully a feature of good education, right? To well, to yeah. teach. Sorry, I was going to say no. I was going to say that that wasn't. I wouldn't say that was necessarily the aim of my Bible college. That that was as a sort of an unintended side consequence of just <laughs> reading articles and books. You, you you're going to eventually come across. You know, you read you read a commentary, and they're they're mm. going to give you two or three possible interpretations of a passage, let's say, of the Bible, and you're going to go, okay, so one interpretation, two, three, four, let's weigh these up, let's look at the strengths and weaknesses of each. That That's critical thinking, isn't it? As you're going, hmm, there's other possibilities, mm. and that right there is going to open you up. But I will say, on the other hand, we had, we had firestorms of controversy when I was a student there over some professors who were deemed liberal, who were just trying to advocate for more, more, more women in ministry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we had one guy hauled up before a committee and there was like a firestorm because he was daring to say women should be in leadership in churches. So, you know, we weren't completely enlightened by any stretch. That's interesting. It's you mentioned that I remember uh, it was when I was uh, still a Christian at the last church uh, my wife and I were at and uh, the the pastor there, genuinely, genuinely lovely man, I got a lot of time for him, really, really liked him and um, he w- w- took to the church meeting to have uh, an assistant pastor and um, so this lady came and visited the church and you know, preached on a, on a Sunday and you know the, we had a church meeting to talk about whether or not uh, she was suitable for uh, to come along and be an assistant pastor at the, at the church so she'd be junior to him we were just reading her bio and uh, it turned out that uh, her and her husband were each on their second marriage mm. and uh, i asked him do we know the circumstances regarding the failure of the the first marriage and he said he didn't know but it was before both of them were christians and for me that was it that that was a non-issue after that point Mm. but there was this sense that it seemed to change the focus of the meeting and there seemed to be a lot of talk then about she's on her second marriage there's this that and i left that meeting regretting that i'd ever brought brought that up up. yeah because i i just felt ashamed of the 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 meeting and some of the conversations that were said after that and it, it, i just felt i just left that meeting after that with a really sour taste in my mouth uh, after what happened after that mm, it's true i mean i remember sitting in a class in bible college when the with this one particular professor waxing eloquent about how jesus was against all forms of divorce and if you're divorced and then you get remarried you're committing adultery and you know mm. there's no other possible interpretation other than that one and my a friend of mine who was divorced but wanted to get remarried walked out of there in literally in tears. And yep. I remember him standing out in the hallway uh, outside the lecture hall weeping because he said, I am now, I guess, destined to be single for the rest of my life because I, I, I'm forbidden from being remarried. So that, you know, that's the legacy of an interpretation like that. It's very devastating. It mm. is. That's um. Uh, for the listeners who care, that doctrine comes from two verses primarily: Matthew yeah. five thirty-two and Matthew nineteen nine. And we had the we had the the same doctrine, and mm-hmm. and I'll just relay a really quick story. Um, I've got an elderly uncle, and 
he and he and his wife, uh, my aunt, passed away uh, relatively recently. They were together for over sixty years, and I know they loved each other um, because you could watch them together and see that there was there was genuine care and consideration between the two of them. But he confided in me. Um, this was actually oh, six or eight years ago now, uh, before she was sick. Uh, he confided in me that one of his regrets in life was that he, that she was the only person he ever dated. Mm. And so they're, they were both from the Southeast, right? Big, you know, buckle of the Bible belt, all of that sort of thing. And this sort of Christian mantra, uh, played a big part in, in his lifelong decisions. Now I am not suggesting that they'd have been happier if they, if they split up, like I said, I think they genuinely loved each other all the way to the end. Um, but what I am saying is that that's not true in all relationships. It's possible Mm. to be in relationships that you do need out of and where Christianity does harm is by telling people that are in relationships that are codependent or self-destructive for some reason, or, or just because one or the other or both are not getting their physical and psychological needs met. Um, this is where Christianity does harm is by not allowing people to seek mm-hmm. their best lives. Well, and that's the whole point. You're, it's a good case study. I was going to say my, my example of it is, my parents, who were quite conservative fundamentalists, they boycotted my oldest sister's wedding years and years ago because she was marrying a, marrying a guy who had himself been divorced before he was he became a Christian. And like you said in your example, that you know it was before he was a Christian. Now he's a Christian. He wants to marry my sister. They refused to go to to the wedding because citing that verse that they were committing mm-hmm. adultery, mm-hmm. and then. Ironically, she then became pretty much trapped in a loveless marriage with this guy. She never, she never left him though, even though she was miserable for over thirty years. He finally wow. pa- passed away. At which point, she then said, "Now I'm free to remarry because he, I'm a widow now. So that's the only biblical grounds for me to remarry." So right. you base these these interpretations from a, a couple of verses in the Bible. Look at the real damage it does in real people's lives. Right. You know, that that's these are concrete examples of, like you said, the harm that Christianity or a particular interpretation can do to people. I'm curious, uh, just just because sometimes you can turn on my uh, uh, my theologic, my theological geek side. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious whether you had the guilty party doctrine. So the Church of mm-hmm. Christ that I was a part of had a guilty party doctrine where the innocent party could remarry. And, and so the, the only reason for divorce was adultery and the adulterer couldn't remarry, but the innocent party could. Did y'all have an innocent party doctor? By the way, Matthew, that's how you sell. That's how you say y'all. <laughs> y'all. <laughs> Did y'all have yeah, a, we, and, well, that? I, <laughs> y'all. Y'all. <laughs> I, I, I remember hearing that view and that's having that discussion with my friend who was weeping in the hallway because this professor was, he was advocating something he called the divorce myth. He actually wrote some books on it that, mm. that 
he and that's his argument. There is no such thing as divorce. Anyone who's divorced is committing adultery who remarries, period. There's no grounds for it. Even he would discount the sexual infidelity and all the rest of it. You know, wow. so I, I it was pretty hardcore. So that is. yeah. I can remember how, saying that to, to my friend saying, Yeah, but your spouse committed adultery and now you're in the process of getting a divorce, according to how I read it, you're free to remarry because that is a seems the biblical grounds, but that you know, ironically, now he is remarried, so I guess he he must have come to that conclusion. I hope he's happy uh, in in his life. This is God's yeah. He's, I don't know. He's a pastor of a church, so I'm not really sure. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know the um, the professor that I was telling you about that praised book burning mm. uh, also taught the guilty party doctrine. But mm. he had this to say about the guilty party doctrine. So he and your professor uh, probably would have gotten on like a house on fire. They'd sure love they each other. As long as there's books there. Right, right. So, <laughs> so what he had to say about the innocent party doctrine is he accepted that it could be a legitimate biblical stance. But that in his time, he'd been a, uh, he was in his 60s at the, at the time that he was my professor. Um in all of his years as a, and, and our term was gospel preacher, mm. in all of his times as a gospel preacher, 40 years thereabouts, he had never run upon an actual case of an innocent party. And so you, he, he was of the view that you could drive someone to adultery by not, uh, by not meeting their psychological mm. or physical needs or, uh, you know, by, by simply not being there when they need companionship or whatever. And so he said he accepted the guilty party doctrine, but he'd never seen an innocent party. So it's yeah, purely <laughs> so, hypothetical. Right. Exactly. That's crazy. Yeah. But, I mean, was, that, that's, but wow. that's the kind of stuff that, that tells women to stay in abusive relationships with their Christian husband. Oh, isn't yeah. it? You, oh, you, yes. you don't, if, if your husband's not cheating on you, you've got no reason to leave that guy. He could be beating you and psychologically abusing you and all the rest of it women in churches are being told that all the time to stay in abusive relationships because he's not having an affair. So you have no grounds for divorce. Well, on the, on the flip side of, of, of that. So I'm just changing just like more positive now on that. I remember being at a, a house group uh, again years ago, cause I was a Christian and there was a, a lady there and we were talking about marital relations, et cetera. And I remember her excited and with relief pointing out how that um, she'd been encouraged that actually it was okay for her if she was feeling that way inclined to seduce her own husband okay interesting (laughs) yeah I know and I remember sitting there thinking you've never been okay trying it before (laughs) and and I just felt so sad for her I think the the whole discussion about this, to me, again, it goes back to it's a case study because it's it's illustrating how people approach Christianity and the Bible because they're saying, okay, it's inspired, it's inerrant or whatever their view of the Bible is. It actually has bearing on the way I should live my life. Mm. It tells me what I should do. And that brings up the layer of, yeah, but it's somebody's interpretation of, so the pastor's up there telling you 
this is what you can and can't do, what you should and should not do, as I interpret this Bible on the podium and telling you what to do. So the whole thing is open to so many abuses within that system, it can be incredibly damaging. Mm. Yeah. So on the on the subject, oh sorry, Andrew, I'm going over you again. Oh, I was just um, agreeing. You go ahead. <laughs> um, on the subject of interpretation, and I probably really need to get this question out there for the sake of any Christian listeners who are listening. Isn't it just possible that the reason why the three of us have have gone uh, apostate is because we had the wrong interpretation and if you're going to have the wrong interpretation of Christianity then it's hardly a surprise that it's all, all gone um, belly up uh, how, how do we respond to that kind of uh, challenge back yeah that's a really good question we could be just getting it wrong we could just be reading the text wrong but that, that again going back to my list there are some people on that list who stayed Christians, but they've had to radically revise their view of, of both God and the Bible. So, yeah, I can stay a Christian. I just need to change my hermeneutic, basically the way I read the Bible and the way I look at God. That's, that's, that is an option, just to say, well, I'm, I'm going to disagree with my old position, but I'm going to broaden things out now. So I think, you know, for some people, they, they do find a home there. I don't know what your other thoughts are, but... Well, my thoughts are that there are so many different interpretations, both mm. of people who have left and both of people who have stayed. So staying in itself or finding a way to make it work for you isn't in and of itself a validation mm. uh, of the belief. That would be my my response to that. And mm. it's probably my best response. So I don't know how I would you know, go beyond that because I don't see how any response back from a Christian could could change the, that that statement. Yeah, it could be just a way to to quell the cognitive dissonance. Maybe that's all it is. Yeah, I've changed my interpretation, so I I don't feel so worried about me going to hell or something. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I guess I guess I have two problems with Christianity today that that remain unanswered. I, I, I'm not can not claiming to be infallible in in interpretation. In fact, I'm I'm happy to say that I'm quite fallible. Um, but if if I am fallible, then it's up to God to mm. to provide an interpretation that is uh, somehow greater than my fallibility, if you see what I mean, right? So, mm. uh, but but that's not actually uh, that's not actually my problem with Christianity. My problem with Christianity today is not in interpretation. My problem with Christianity is in contradiction. Mm. And so I, I cannot, uh, at this point in my life, accept an all-loving and all-hating God. Mm. Uh, those those things those things do seem to me to be uh, fundamentally orthogonal to each other, in in a way that just they they can't be reconciled. Maintaining an eternal torture chamber for the people who didn't get it right strikes me as as a as a contradiction, but even if it weren't, it wouldn't be a God that I could worship. But my second problem is actually the greatest one. The Bible, uh, at least Christianity, makes some great claims about the Christian God. 
that he's all knowing, that he's all powerful, that he's all present, that he does or doesn't have an eternal torture ta- uh, chamber, that he, he can rightly divide the good from the evil with, with perfect certainty, um, that he has the capacity to impart to others the ability to live forever. And the list goes on. It's not like you guys need me to tell you what the list is. Mm-hmm. But, but here's the problem. The Bible can't answer whether any of those things are actually true. Is there a God that can live forever? Well, you can assert that in a book, but it takes a long time to live forever. Mm-hmm. Um, Can't validate is, that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it's circular there is, logic too, isn't it? It is. And, yeah. and the same thing is true for a God that can rightly divide the, the good from the evil. Now, I'm not saying that it would be impossible to convince me of of those things. But the Christian God isn't trying to convince us. These are all the answers that we get after the game is over. Mm-hmm. You know, after the king has been captured, that's when you get to find out, oh yeah, there was this guy behind the curtain, you know, um, uh, you know, winding the gears of Oz or, or, or whatever game he's playing. And without those fundamental questions answered, without those assertions being addressed directly, I conclude that even if there is a God, he's not one for whom I have justifiable faith. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. And th- that that's probably why I was an angry theist for so long, you know, because I, I, I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is the God, as I read the Bible, he commanded genocide, he had all these horrific laws in the Old Testament, and yet there's all these people sitting in church worshiping and praying and saying they love this God. And I'm going, wait a minute, this God commanded genocide. How can you, and you say God is the same yesterday and today and forever. So it's the same God. He hasn't changed. What happened to that aspect of God, the one who commanded genocide and those horrific things in the Old Testament? You know, there's all kinds of answers for that, of course. I know all the answers, but it, it's it's unsatisfying. It doesn't work. It right. didn't work for me anyway. Right. Yeah, those things, would, those things would be a blocker for me. If, it's uh, a huge in, in going back they weren't why i left but they mm-hmm. would stop me yeah. going back i can't worship that god there's no way and when i hear hymns and things that i used to sing that can be really triggering because they're filled with a lot of theology about you know i'm such a worm and i'm such a lowly oh, person yeah. and god you know reached down and pulled me out of the miry clay and the pit and all the rest mm-hmm. of it I don't want to see myself as that kind of person. That's very debilitating and very right. mental health from a mental health point of view. It's very damaging. Right. Yeah. You're not fundamentally broken and, sinful and, and yeah, right. everything. Right. But that's yeah, what Christianity says. You are. Yeah. Right. And it's interesting. You mentioned that because I, I've said this to someone before. I can't remember who, and um, I don't have any evidence on which to claim it as a belief, but I would love somebody to be able to, do a study on it and I, I don't think I have got the right skills to do it but I do think that there are issues with uh, young people uh, and single people in our churches and uh, mm. and and poor self-esteem or even mental health issues and I think it all mm. boils down to the Christian me- message of you're a wretch and you can't do anything with God now in my memories of being a uh, youth worker uh, in a in church and uh, part of a prayer team in church and people coming and just feeling wretched about themselves and and struggling and they, they've 
got these all loads and loads of self-esteem. I just remember lots of people with self-esteem issues, mm-hmm. and I think it does tie down to the, this doctrine of your your worthless wretch and you can't do anything unless God helps you or does it for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, but I, it's beyond. It, all I have is this this gut feeling and this tying of theology. I need somebody who who has actually done the study and got some academia to 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 tie it together i'm but i'm pretty sure there's a correlation there there is it's the religious trauma syndrome i've got an episode coming up with dr marlene winnell who basically wrote the book on rts and we we just did a discussion for a podcast coming up and she talks about when you indoctrinate young children who grew up in a, a fundamentalist or conservative church with exactly that doctrine it's very psychologically damaging it's sexually damaging and on and on, and it's all been it has been documented. So yeah, people have done that research, and uh, it's quite shocking when you see what it does to kids, especially growing up in these churches. Do you know uh, who Dr. Daryl Ray is? Oh yes, yep, I, I had him on the podcast last year. <laughs> okay, I haven't gotten that, so my apologies. I'm not that far. Mm. Uh, yeah. in, in your back catalog, and I listened to three episodes just last night. So I'm oh, looking wow. forward. Yeah, I'm, look, I told you I like your podcast. Binge listening. <laughs> well, I am, um, and and that's you can get treatment really for addiction, you know, Andrew. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is kind of addiction. I don't want. I, I don't have a problem. <laughs> First thing is denial. You can stop anytime you like. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's exactly. Yep. Right. I can stop anytime I want. Yeah, so. So don't need a five step to this one. I'm happy to. Uh, so the listeners ought to know. I mean, you know, there there are some things that we want our that our listeners we want them to tune into, and some things we like more than others. I genuinely like your podcast. Mm. I sincerely hope that they will uh, that they will come and have a listen because I think it's worth listening to. And and um, so it's interesting that you're doing another podcast on um, on recovering from religion and, and mm. religion and, and abuse and that sort of thing. Cause that's a, a big deal to, yeah, uh, to Daryl Ray. Yeah. Yeah. Recovering uh, from religion. Yeah, exactly what it yeah. is that you um, have to do that, you know, that you have right. to recover from religion. Mm. You shouldn't have right. to, that, that's we are. Exactly right. we're all doing it. Right. He's, uh, he's, he's touched my life. I'm actually a, a hotline agent at mm-hmm. recovering from religion. Yeah. You and, uh, yeah. And this, I, I don't, talk about the things that callers say when they call on mic very often, mm-hmm. but they are truly heartbreaking. They're truly heartbreaking stories of, of abuse and neglect. And, and, uh, and sometimes it's just intellectual curiosity that people, you know, sometimes it's very mild. Like, you know, I, I feel like I can't read this other source about Christianity that I'd like. So sometimes it's, it's lighter and, and it doesn't mm-hmm. have, earth-shattering, uh, or, or at least life-altering consequences. But so many calls that we get are, are people um, that have their lives permanently altered by religion, and they can't leave because of the carrot and the stick. Mm-hmm. If I leave, I'm going to hell. If I stay, maybe this will all be worth it. Maybe the fact that my preacher abused me for five years as a child and the fact that my minister is taking it, but these are real incidents. I'm not making any of this up. Mm. I won't 
say who the people are. My my preacher takes advantage of me now. I've been taking advantage of as a child. But if I just stay, heaven will cure it all. Mm, the sunk cost fallacy, isn't it? A lot of it is. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it is. Uh, and I hadn't yeah. put that quite together like that. So it's yeah. nicely done. Yeah. That's what it is. It's the longer you go with it and you see that it's damaging to you, but you think, if I just keep putting a little bit more into this, it's going to come around someday. It's going to pay off. And the, it's a money pit sort of thing, you know? Right. It's exactly what it is. Uh, Rolf DeBelli's uh, book. Um, I'll have to see if I can find it. But if, if people are, if they like that kind of um, thought fallacies. Yeah. Uh, Rolf Dubelli right, uh, wrote a great book on it. Uh, I was, I was, the thing that made me think of it was you uh, identifying the sunk cost fallacy like mm-hmm. you did. That's one of them in the book. So. Um, yeah, that's nicely done, nicely identified. Um, well, but it's part of the cult psychology. That's why I immediately, when you started describing it, I was like, oh, that's what he's talking about. It's the way cults are able to keep people in for as long as they do because, mm-hmm. you know, you just, it's like Scientology is a classic example. The money is is a is a clear cut case of the sunk cost fallacy. People spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they just keep stringing them along. You're going to break through in the next month, in the next year, and the next just another five thousand dollars, another ten thousand, another three thousand, and they just keep doing it. They think, oh, this isn't getting me anywhere, but they just keep plowing money into it. Right. Classic case. Um, that book, uh, if you're interested, is the art of thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rolf R O L F D O B E L L I, and it's a, uh, it's fantastic. Something like a hundred different uh, reasoning errors that are identified mm-hmm. in the book. Really, really a nice piece of work. Um, Matthew, I, I sense that we are. Um, well, no, 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 don't, no, no, not yet, not yet. I've You're got, not sensing uh, anything. <laughs> You're okay, sensing okay. Wrong thing. It's uh, that malfunctioning Mac of yours. What is? Um, <laughs> I. Clint, have you had any feedback from Christians uh, on your list? See, that's the funny mm. thing. I don't really get any feedback from Christians other than the occasional evangelical troll on Twitter or something like that. Mm. But the people that, that I hear from from the podcast are you know, deconstructing. They're going through all the stuff we've been talking about. Um, they found the show. They've stumbled across it somewhere or saw it on Twitter or something. And uh, so they're they're grateful for the kind of the, the way that you can sort of put the pieces together. So that that tends to be the kind of feedback that I get from most listeners. I don't get that many Christians on there. Maybe that one Christian that's listening to your show will <laughs> check me out. Please give us some feedback, Mr. One Chris, or Mrs. One, Mr. We, Mrs. We, whichever, yeah, whoever you are. And, You're out there somewhere. But... But have you had much engagement with Christians on uh, on the reasons for people leaving Christianity? Because my experience, I want you to answer first, but as a, as a hint, my experience of conversations or trying to get Christians to understand reasons for leaving very, very rarely go well at all. Yeah, I was going to say the ones that I do have, their stock response is, well, you were never a Christian to begin with. And that's that's the simple solution in their mind. You're not you weren't a Christian, so you're a false you were a false Christian. That's the only way. So you've fallen away. If you were a true Christian to begin with, you'd still be a Christian. So that's kind of the the, the stock response that I tend to get. 
it's the most common response yeah, that I get ver- variations on on that, and it is by by a long, long margin. It's mm-hmm. way more than fifty percent, probably even more than three quarters of the responses I I get is uh, you you were doing it wrong, or you were never fully mm-hmm. saved, or or you really are saved, uh, or you really do know God exists. You're just burying it at the moment, or you just wanted to sin. Uh, it's it's all variations yeah. of the of the same, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, it's quite. It used to make me really, really angry. It used to be my hot button, and as soon mm. as somebody went there, I would just really come triggered. at them with absolutely, um, yeah, absolutely triggered. Um, but again, now I've I've resigned myself that this is something that's not going to go away. So I respond very differently. I'm very firm in my response, but it it no longer makes me cross and angry the way it used mm. to. But even the response, I mean, I, I tend to do the same thing. I'll say, well, I was a, I went to Bible college seminary, you know, blah, 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 blah. I was a pastor for 12 years. I was a Bible college teacher for over 20 years. I was in ministry. Uh, I taught this stuff. I preached it. I, I studied Greek and Hebrew. I mean, I don't know how much more proofs you want. I was probably way more of a Christian and studied it way more than that person who's telling me I wasn't a true Christian. Mm. What about that? And then, like you say, they'll come back with something. You're just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, man. <laughs> you're just, yeah. You just want to go say, okay, whatever. I can't prove it. So they just double down. It's a, And it's hard to, do you have a good response to that? Because I've tried various responses and I'm struggling to have a good response to that because once somebody is set like that, I found that it's very hard to get them to listen to you. Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, we know this is true that people rarely change their points of view when you present factual evidence or whatever. I mean, whether it's politics or religion or, or whatever it is. So you're not going to convince them probably. You just say, "Look, I'm, we're we're going to have to agree to disagree." What what? Mm-hmm. It's a th- it's very threatening to them. I think they they see us as sort of a a contagion not we're talking about the coronavirus but it's like a spreading contagion that they need to fight against mm-hmm. and so it's very threatening if it happened and if it happened to us it could happen to them that's mm-hmm. that's a critical one so they can't entertain the possibility that it could happen to them so they've got to stuff their fingers in their ears and double down and and go down that line so um in case it's not come out in the last hour and the bit that we've been talking what what one thing would you want a, a Christian listening to this um, struggling with why and the reasons why we've left and reading through your list and struggling to engage how somebody could end up multiple steps down down that list? What's what one nugget would you want them to take away to to consider? I would say having that you've got permission to explore other paths. You know, and and like I've been saying, you don't have to you don't have to think. Okay, I've got to slot into this one forever. You're gonna probably change your perspectives as you start going down that line. But for example, in my case, I got into progressive Christians. I was a kind of a progressive Christian for about five or six years. That opened me up to a lot of other things. And I see now, looking back 15, 20 years later, that was a necessary step in my sort of evolution. So. That was hugely important at the time, and now I see, yeah, it was really a good step that I went through. That I didn't stay there, but it was really good to, to work through that phase, I guess, if you will. So I have a lot of respect for guys like Rob Bell and 
people like that because they helped me move from sort of point A to point B or C down the spectrum. So don't feel like you have to stay somewhere forever. You can be open to other possibilities. Okay. And funny you mentioned Rob Bell and Rob Bell was crumbs four years ago now when he Mm -hmm. did his year without God. It it was quite some time ago now. And there have been other high profile exes since then. And more recently, there's been Retin Link YouTube stars. I will confess, I have no idea who they are. I've not watched their channel, but they've got a blue tick on their Twitter feed. So they're clearly known to a certain demographic. Come on, man. Um, good mythical morning. You don't you don't know good mythical morning. Oh, <laughs> I'm too clearly too old for this thing. I I don't I I've, there is so much media out there, and I drive to work and I listen to podcasts. Something has to go, so I don't YouTube, and that's that's the line I've drawn. You know, I've got a teenager at home who YouTube's. I don't. I podcast, and I'm quite <laughs> happy with that. Um, so. What do you think the message is that's coming out then about these high-profile levers? That is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I'm not—I haven't followed Rob Bell, so I'm I'm not familiar with what he's done. That's interesting. He podcasts uh, Life After God. It's quite a good podcast. I really enjoy it. Oh right, yeah, because I used to listen to the Rob Casts, and that was good about three or four years ago. But then I thought, yeah, he's still—I'm—I'm moved past that. I'm not, you know where he's at anymore i was once but uh, he still got a lot of good things to say we went and saw him up in manchester a few years ago i thought that was really good it was just really a, kind of a refreshing talk you know so i got a lot of time for rob bell but now I'm, it makes me want to go back and research what he's doing currently because i'm i haven't followed him and, and do you think it's important that these high profile people um and now because there's been a couple of worship leaders as well haven't they who oh yeah made this, this big announcement and then they've gone silent well, uh, yeah. do you do you think um uh it's important that these people announce loudly that they're leaving or do you think it's just better I guess for the it world is for if them. quietly well what's so interesting i think is the responses that we've seen from yeah. the concert that's where i'm fascinated by uh, I can't remember who the guy's name, but yeah, there was a big, a big, it was an ex-worship leader or something. Wasn't Josh, he? Was it Joshua? Oh, oh and, yeah, the, the kiss dating goodbye guy. That yeah. was Joshua McDowell. Was that yeah, right? No, 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 not McDowell. Josh Harris. Josh Harris, Josh. that's the one. Oh, yeah, yeah okay. that was a big one. He, he denounced his book and all the purity he culture he stuff and the firestorm that came after him. One, yeah. That, and you and he heard all the same sorts of responses that we've been talking about. Well, he was never a Christian to begin with, you know. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yep. And you go right down that line. So you go. So that's where they're coming from. They have to come from that point of view because in, if if they entertained any other possibility, he was a Christian and then he left. Now he's an apostate. What does that mean? Yeah. I. What's your response when you see? this section of Christianity that chews up people like that, because I can't think of a better way to describe it because the, the things that get written uh, about Joshua Harris and mm. uh, Retton link, I included uh, a link to, to one article written about them uh, in, in our email exchanges and other, um, there are Christians, vocal Christians who really chew them up. How, what do you think when you, you read that kind of thing? It strikes me that it's it's the cognitive dissonance side of things. 
you have to when you're experiencing any sort of cognitive dissonance you have to have some way to quell the dissonance for your own mental health and so when you mm-hmm. see the response you go okay that's it he was never a christian who you know thank god for that you know <laughs> i'm fine i guess i'm okay he was never a christian well we can dismiss him and and move on with our lives and that's kind of where I, th- I i go down the cult psychology route and think okay, okay. Uh, that's how I see it now is like they, they have someone has to make a big point that he was an apostate and, you know, and the, and some high profile leader will write a Facebook post or a blog article or a Christianity today article or something. And that settles that, you know, that's done. We can dismiss him now. Uh, he was never a Christian. It's, yeah, just, it's, that, it's just that easy. Yeah, it, it, it is easy, but the trouble with easy is it's uh, often wrong. Yeah. And I, it's it's this the thing that bothers me about about that kind of item is it's somebody from afar possibly never even met the person involved and mm-hmm. I've been on the receiving no end of this idea. kind of thing yeah. who who diagnoses what their mind state is remotely and says this is what they're thinking uh, effectively yeah. and why they're doing it what their uh, motives and, are and yeah, yeah. I, yep. I, I know, and it, it's when I read those bits, that's when I shake my head and go, "Really, you don't know anything." Mm-hmm. Yep, that's it, and and that's the whole thing, isn't it? Is it's just a, a way to to dismiss the person out of hand, and like they don't know anything about. Them. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. When I was a pastor of a church, I was a pastor for ten years, and I had all these great things that I that I was doing, and then when all the stuff started getting really nasty, people started lying and gossiping. The people believed the worst things about me that weren't even true. And they were talking about me behind my back. And I'm going, wait a minute, you've known me for years. How can you turn around and treat me like this, knowing the track record that I've had? It meant nothing. And people that didn't even know me were spreading gossip and and lies and rumors. So you think, okay, well, that happens in churches. So why not in the wider world of Christianity? So, Clint, what would you do then if somebody or sorry how would your response be if somebody came to you and said that it doesn't matter if they're a high profile christian or not let's imagine they are just for, just for the kudos um and said they were struggling uh, with their faith they didn't really know where to turn they needed some guidance they needed to know that they weren't going crazy what what would you say to them and how would you treat them that's yeah that's a good question i would say that it's it's good to have that dialogue, isn't it? Because you start unpacking. Okay, what what are you questioning? What what are you what are your doubts? What do you you know? You, this is a safe space. You can you can express any concern, any doubt, any problem, any issue. You're not going to get judged. You're not. I'm, I don't have any. I don't have a point of view. I'm not going to prop up a system. I'm not. You know. I'm not here to. I'm not beholden to a church. I don't have to talk you into anything or out of anything. You know, that's where you, I think that's where I go when I, when people do come and they'll message me and things, we'll have those kind of discussions. I like chatting with people on Skype or Zoom uh, about those kind of things. And we just have these discussions and I'll get into those questions about what are you struggling with? What are your, what are your doubts? Um, what are your concerns? What are your problems? Let's talk about it. I'm not trying to convince them of anything. I just want to let them kind of a counseling session, I guess, in a way they need to unload and unburden in a safe place. That's probably the biggest thing without being judged or, you know, talked into or out of something. That's the problem with Christian counseling from what I've understood is that 
they're generally going to try to convince you back into the church. They're going to say, well, your problem is you've got sin in your life. You need to get back into the church. You need to submit to your husband or, you know, that kind of thing. And that's quite damaging. It could be for a lot of people. I'm not yeah. going to, I'm not doing that for sure. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you, you got to read your Bible more or pray more or whatever. And have you had people contact you in that situation? Yeah. And like I say, I, I, I get a lot of people that message me on Twitter. They'll DM me and I'll say, Hey, let's chat. Let's, let's do a zoom call or let's do a Skype chat or a Facebook chat. And uh, so I've had some fantastic discussions with people that just found me on Twitter or somewhere on social media and we'll just talk about where they're coming from. I just talked to a woman last week that came out of the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church with a horrific story, mm-hmm. you know, and we probably talked for a good two hours. Wow. And she just found me on Twitter, you know. Next thing I know, we're having a two-hour Zoom call, you know. It's fascinating. That, that, that's awesome. And, and Andrew and I have had, uh, had, had similar. And when I was deconstructing more than 10 years ago, I didn't have the ability to connect in, into that uh, mm-hmm. structure. I was reading blogs uh, yeah. of of a few exes, and you know there was a lot of pain there, and I was conversing there, and there was a little bit of community there, and I blogged about my story, and we we kind of all commented on each other's blogs, but there did seem to be quite a lot of pain uh, mm-hmm. in there from from people who were who were still still Christians, which was really hard. I I didn't have the ability to be able to process all that. Um, and I needed somebody to talk to. And there, I looked around my friends, my entire friendship circle was Christians. Mm-hmm. And I went through them in my head, you know, who can I talk to? Who can I talk to? And there were uh, probably as many as half a dozen who were probably people who I trusted enough to be able to talk to. But I didn't because as I analyzed each individual, I realized I didn't know any of them well enough to know how they would respond. And it was that not knowing that stopped me from uh, saying I'm having these doubts. I think I'm on the way out. But I really, really needed and really, really wanted Mm -hmm. to talk to somebody uh, about it. And um, I think the closest I got was... uh, uh, a girl I knew, I, I'd been her youth leader uh, for a while. I I trust genuinely trusted her, and she was uh, in a relationship. Uh, well, she was she was married to somebody, but when they first got together, he wasn't a Christian, and I hadn't realised that he'd converted. So I said to her, "How was it for you deciding to marry so and so when he wasn't a Christian?" And she instantly said, "Oh, he he converted before he got engaged. I'd have never got engaged if he wasn't wasn't converted. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a, mm-hmm. and at that point I said, okay, I can't tell you. Uh, yeah, and um, got to find a safe person for sure. Yeah, it, it it did need need to be. So I went through that entire process, three years of deconstruction, completely alone, and mm-hmm. it was terrible. Uh, and I didn't even uh, tell my wife until couple of years after it was a done deal Mm. and that causes its own exactly world world of pain that and uh that itself is is not a good and the only reason i ended up at that place was purely the fear of the conversation i was going to have with the christians because i didn't know somebody 
like mm -hmm. yourself who I could connect to to have a live chat to talk through what was going through my mind so mm. I guess the message that I want to give to anybody listening is if you're in that situation seek somebody out we've got you're in a better place now than I was 10 years ago in terms of access to people who mm. who actually care who will create a safe environment for you so go and find that you'll be amazed how great the EXA community is uh, dealing with strangers people they don't know who are ha having these doubts mm. don't fear us please there are some great people mm. out there if you don't trust myself and Andrew that's fine there will be somebody out there who you can trust you can trust Matthew's me he's a Windows unit <laughs> a Windows unit okay, yeah, we can't trust him. <laughs> well I was going to say um, on your point about finding you, sometimes you got to form a new tribe that's one mm. piece of advice. So if you if you go on Twitter and just do a, a search on hashtag exvangelical, you'll find a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, you'll start connecting with other people in that community just on Twitter, for example. Uh, and so that's one one quick and easy way. In, in terms of social media, you can read books, like you were saying, articles. Uh, Tim Sledge's book, Goodbye Jesus, that's a good one. He's a, he was a, a evangelical pastor of a mega church in Texas. Uh, big time, big leader in the church, and he became an atheist. And he describes his whole journey in that book. It's a fascinating book, you know. So there's people out there you can connect with. But if you look at the the definition of religious trauma syndrome, it's a double whammy because on the one hand, yeah. it's, you're getting traumatized while you're in the religion through the abuse and everything else. But then when you leave it, as you described, it's the it's the trauma, the grief, the loss, the betrayal, you know. So there's another thing on the back end you've got to work through that as well. So it's a, it's a double whammy, really. For those yeah. listeners who might be uh, young atheists, if that's an okay uh, term, mm -hmm. recent, recent, uh, recently deconstructed, and for any Christians listening, if you need uh, more than an electronic connection, if you need a voice, to, to, uh, if you need someone to talk to, um, sometimes these things hit us hardest in the middle of the night, right? When we're alone and, and connecting on Twitter or whatever, just, just doesn't feel like enough. Uh, go to recoveringfromreligion.org, click on the hotline project, call the number on the screen. Not only will you find a friendly voice, uh, it, it, you'll, you'll find someone like me who genuinely cares, though it'd be very unusual to actually get me if that's who you were looking for. But one of the things that we have at the fingertips of every hotline agent is a database of, of local groups all over the United States and, and sometimes all over the world, just depending on where mm -hmm. you are and, and how up to date the database is, uh, of, of atheist groups, of agnostic groups, of free thinking societies. Uh, and, and we will not only talk to you about these things, uh, when when you're at your lowest point and you really just need someone to talk to, but we'll help you look the stuff up on the internet. We'll walk you through the process. We'll send you an email and you can call us back anytime. To mm. recoveringfromreligion.org and click on the hotline project. I can I can say that um, like I said, the stories are heartbreaking, and and sometimes. It is that loss of community that is hardest. It's that it's that who am I now moment. And and 
that keeps a lot of people wedded to religion when they really don't want to be. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes even a bad friend is better than no friend at all. But there are ways out. Absolutely. And, and, and I tell you, it, it, it sounds like it sounds like you can connect with Clint on Twitter. You, That's you true. Can, you can Zoom call. You can Skype call. You can, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe even maybe even phone call, depending on if you're in the right part of the world. But I do connect because the thing that is hardest about leaving religion most often, the story that I hear most is how lonely it is. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be lonely. Right. Okay, so sorry. Done, done with the right. sermon. Uh, well, I thought it was an advertisement. We need to find some organ music to play over, over that. <laughs> Stir the heartstrings. Oh, oh, nicely said. I have <laughs> just one more question, I think, to throw at you, Clinton. There's, there's more that, that come up. A question which I'm faced with because I'm an... Uh, an active and loud atheist in a, in a sea of Christians where, where I am. The, a question that gets thrown at me an awful lot more out of incredulity than anything else is, why do you have to do that? Can't you just go quietly and not make a ripple? Why is it so important for the likes of Andrew and I and yourself and the many other such podcasts that exist to fly our atheist flag in the way that we do? Mm. I would say, though, I'm not trying to convince anyone in or out of anything. You know what I mean? I'm I'm trying to get people to think critically. That That's my goal. And I, I, I do get emails from people who are really angry atheists. And I'm not you. You guys don't strike me as being that way where you're out to fully disprove Christianity. They're gullible fools. They're blah, blah, blah. I'm not doing that. I just want to talk to people. I want to engage with people. And if that gets you to think and question your rea- your reality, then I feel like I've done my job, you know. So I don't get I, maybe that's why I don't get attacked by by Christians. <laughs> I'm not really I don't feel like I'm coming after the church. I used to, but I don't do that anymore. I just I just talk to people uh, who are, and, and they tell their stories. It's hard to argue with somebody's real life experience, isn't it? Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. happened to me. So you you do with it what you will, but this is my story. You know, and you're going to identify with p- perhaps some or all of it, and that's very powerful. Yeah, it's true. I'm I'm not an angry atheist, mm-hmm. though. Though I will say that as an atheist, there are things that can make me angry. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, but but in general, um, from from a long time ago, maybe ten years ago, I I realized that. Um, being angry at a being that doesn't exist mm. just seems ridiculous. <laughs> it, 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 you know, how can you not laugh, right? Shaking it, your like, fist at an empty sky. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Uh, it's, why, why be filled with impudent rage over, over a being that, okay, and, and that sounded like a very affirmative statement, like I'm, mm. like I'm the, atheist who says um, that no God exists, uh, mm. like I'm taking an affirmative position. I'm not, though I think I am in the place that Isaac Asimov was in when he was asked uh, about God. He said, 
words to the effect that um, he did not know that there was not a God, but it was no longer worth his time to investigate. Mm. And and so, no, I, I don't know that there's not a God hiding on the backside of the moon that the Chinese rover will dig up, uh, you know, mm. momentarily or or uh, that there's one hiding out under the ice uh, on Europa or or, or whatever. Um, but even if there were, if it's not a God I would worship, it's not a God I should be mad at, mm. uh, though the the misconduct of the Catholic Church or uh, a fundamentalist Mormons mm. who who have you know yes that will make me angry yeah that's the thing is the dangers of religionism that's right. what you know I'm 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 right with you I I get upset about the damage that religion has done historically and is doing mm. right now mm. that's mm. something to be upset about whether is that God's fault what God may not even exist. But right. there's there's harm being done right now to millions of people all over the world because of religion. So you can't right. deny that. In my in my book, that's something to be upset about. Right. Absolutely. Mm. And that seems like a good moment to close. Uh, then, unless there's any more questions from from anyone or comments from anyone. We certainly covered a lot of ground, didn't we? We, we did. Um, <laughs> we did. Uh, thank you. I have no idea how well we followed my bullet-pointed uh, list because I haven't even got it in. Oh, wait, there was a list? <laughs> I think <laughs> yeah. it was in an email somewhere. It always seems so righteous and great to, to put great up idea. a list. And then, and then you get to the conversation and it goes way off. Yeah. Thank you the so list much. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say the list looked more like a modern art masterpiece than an actual list. <laughs> it was just sort of just sort of these various dots on a canvas. But, uh, Clint, I'll, I'll say this: in the run-up to this show, and uh, this this will be uh, my final words. Um, but but Matthew, that means that you've got to give the get in touch bit, which means I know I'm going to take abuse for the for the PC Mac thing. That's that's fine. Clint, I'll, I'll tell you that in the run-up to this show. Um, Matthew and I were hugely excited to talk to you. And so mm. we have covered a lot of ground that has been very organic, but mm. the reason is that we had so many things that we wanted to talk to you about and, and just, uh, you know, we were excited to have you on and it's been a, a genuine pleasure. Yeah, uh, I really appreciate to, it. To have you on the podcast. Yeah, I've absolutely enjoyed it. I love, you know, chatting with guys like you. Just yeah, you just start going and everything bounces off each other and we're talking about Trump one minute and evangelicalism and this and that and <laughs> just sort of yes. goes everywhere. Yeah, very organic but a, mm. but a wonderful conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Uh, excellent. Thank you. Thank you Clint. Uh, cheers um Andrew. Um yes, yeah, so yeah, we got you on to talk about uh, your podcast and uh, about your your list of reasons why people leave. We've uh, moved around on that. We want we're planning to do multiple other uh, podcasts on on this subject. I'm guesting on skeptics and seekers tomorrow evening for another episode on that. In fact, you'll probably hear the skeptics and seekers episode before I've edited this and uh, uploaded purely because of the different turnaround times on the on the two podcasts. Thank you so much, Clint. We've hinted uh, offline that we might try and do do uh, something else, a repeat or or whatever. We'll we'll work that out and mm. announce it in due course. If we can get you back on, 
we'll yeah, probably absolutely. probably do that we absolutely intend to do some more episodes on the whole subject of uh, exit from from religion and how you do it and how you process and asking we haven't really addressed the questions in this episode of of how you would we go back or what would take us back other than we can't see how we could that that's not the fullest answer that we could possibly give if you're a listener who wants to talk specifically about that subject maybe you're a christian you want to challenge us on on some things on that and have a conversation of a similar style to what we've just had please get in touch these are definitely more conversations in this subject area that we would like to have Thank you so much, uh, Clint. You people, you can find Clint on the Mindshift podcast. Make sure there's, I think there's multiple podcasts called Mindshift. So make sure you, make sure you find the right one. Don't, don't do what what I did and spend and uh, spend a few weeks listening to uh, wonderful episodes on education, wondering when the religion bit is going to come on. Unless (laughs) education is your. Yeah, unless education is your thing, then by all means, uh, go and do that. I'm not saying it's a bad podcast. It's just yeah. not Clint's podcast and um, and there's uh, Clint's list that we, we talked about earlier on the media is it medium website medium, yeah, medium.com uh, medium.com you can contact Andrew and myself at reasonpress.net or reasonpress at gmail.com thank you very much for listening see you again next time you have been listening to a podcast by Reason Get in touch, email reasonpress at gmail.com or see our website reasonpress.net where you'll also find our book, Still Unbelievable. We welcome more feedback and you might even end up on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. You can hear more of her music at soundcloud.com slash hollybishop. You can support us by buying some of Holly's music and telling her we sent you.